information, call 510-858-5313. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 9th, 2018. I suppose some of you watched the Golden Globes over the weekend. Uh, I I did, actually, a little bit. Not not much, but uh, the thing is that uh, the Golden Globes, uh, that's an award given out by the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press, you know. So it's, it's a better, it's a, better test than the Oscars. It's more authentic. The people actually say what they want to say. Uh, This year, uh, the big issue is all about sexual harassment. Uh, Harassment? Harassment, yes, dear. (laughs) Anyway, I guess, yes, the issue is all about women being harassed in the work place. Big news, right? (laughs) Uh, It may be a precious issue for some folks. I'm in the group that says, why the hell don't the women just say F you and be done with it? Uh, The truth is that uh, some of this stuff, the way some men act, uh, think of Donald Trump (laughs) and in his uh, approach to Hillary on television, yes, uh, it's only a symptom, folks. Uh, the abuse is real, of course. It really is. But it's so confusing. I mean, ass-grabbing may not be life-threatening. But it's a symptom. It's a uh, an indication. Uh, it's the behavior that signals male privilege. Uh, I mean, I keep thinking what would happen if... If I did that to some guy, I guess nowadays I'd be sued. Anyway, the attitude uh, that they show leads to the dark stuff. In some cases, uh, you know, it leads to rape, uh, even to murder. Uh, Funny thing is that these symptoms, uh, 
I, I, I don't know. I still think, I still think that uh, the, the tough gal attitude is best. Irish women tend to use laughter. <laughs> you know, mo- most men will go away if you really, really laugh in their faces. Uh, I think the women, well, this time, the women wanted to show solidarity, so they all dressed in black. I got up this morning and I was late, but I managed to dress in black from head to toe. Solidarity, solidarity. Meryl Streep said that uh, a line has been drawn before and after. Oprah Winfrey looking absolutely gorgeous, stunning. Yes, that's the main thing, girls. You know, if you're going to do that sort of thing, what is that? If you're going to rebel against high-heeled shoes, be sure and do it in a very smart hat. Anyway. Uh, the word has gone out. No more coarse behavior. Enough is enough. No more of this nasty talk. Uh, I thought that all that would happen with Anita Hill back in 1991, but I was wrong about that. Anyway, this time, this time, I think the women mean it. Now, some of the men joined in. That's a biggie, uh... William Macy, one of my favorite actors from Shameless, you know, he wore black and some of a few of the other guys. uh, He's got a show running now called Shameless. It's been running for oh years. And William Macy plays a father in an Irish family uh, down in Southside Chicago. Uh, His character is a drunk, but but classy definitely has reverence for women as many as he can get his hands on anyway. The point is that men, males, have to get it. That's essential for change. Uh, the Irish approach, as I said, is to laugh, laugh in their faces. But the truth is, uh, harassment is simply a symptom. Uh, real abuse, well, the dangers and damage that can be done... I think of women writers, most of all, the woman who most sharply reflects the uh, damage that can be done by abuse is Virginia Woolf. And, of course, her abuse came when she was a child. I, I want to start with a little bit from Charlotte Bronte because it dates from August 1950. No, excuse me, 1850. I can't find my I can't find my old article here. I wrote it back in the 80s and uh I quoted Charlotte Bronte writing in a letter to Elizabeth Gaskell in August of 1850. And here's what Charlotte has to say. She says, "Men begin to regard the position of women in another light than they used to do, and a few men whose sympathies are fine and whose sense of justice is strong, think and speak of it with a candor that commands my admiration. They say, however, and to an extent truly, that the amelioration of our condition depends on ourselves. Certainly there are evils which our own efforts will best reach, Just as certainly there are other evils deep-rooted 
in the foundations of the social system which no efforts of ours can touch, of which we cannot complain, and of which it is advisable not too often to think. There's Charlotte saying, you know, you don't even want to think about it. Uh, Talking about it, speaking up, declaring that you won't put up with it anymore, and rejecting the notion of shame, usually... Men are protected by woman's shame. Uh, Anyway, I think what I'll do today, just to try to make it it seem serious uh, so that people will understand uh, a little bit of what this is all about. I, I remember back when I was trying to get a degree in women's studies, women's literature, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff about the Brontes and uh, the 19th century women. But actually, Virginia Woolf is the one that stays with me. Uh, I called her Shakespeare's sister because she wrote that wonderful essay, Room of One's Own, at the end of which she said that if Shakespeare's sister had gone up to London the same time that Shakespeare did, uh, she would have wound up you know, pregnant, abandoned, and done for. Uh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I think I think Virginia is the best example of uh, the damage, yes. The, the mindset. I have often wondered in her writing why she's so damn... Uh, what's the word? Not standoffish, but objective. Uh, she used to say that uh, Emily Bronte's writing was better than Charlotte Bronte's because Charlotte allowed herself uh, emotional feelings, personal stuff. You know, in Jane Eyre, we know what Jane is thinking and feeling, whereas uh, in Emily Bronte, the young woman, uh, Kathy, Catherine Heathcliff, uh, Heathcliff's love, Catherine, is the, what is it, is the one that, uh, what is that, delivers a message by being an invalid, by simply having the vapors of dying, you remember. Uh, in 19th century, men homicidal, women suicidal. That was the bit. Uh, anyway, by the time we get to Virginia Woolf, it has changed. I want to do the Brontes again soon because it's so essential. Anyway, in a room of one's own, Virginia Woolf wrote back in 1928... She writes, it's useless to go to the great men writers for help, however much one may go to them for pleasure. She understood that women must tell their own story. It's our turn. (laughs) Anyway, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, Virginia was. Virginia did suffer from uh, internalized pain. Uh, She wrote, I know that I must go on dancing on hot bricks till I die. She knew that she was dancing with the devil, a daemon who drove her to create as well as into her periods of psychotic withdrawal. It's important to remember that Virginia Woolf was not just neurotic or high-strung. She had bouts of psychotic madness during which she had to be subdued, nursed, cared for in isolation. 
Virginia's mother died when she was 13 years old. Uh, my first area of identification, uh, me too, yes, mother was 13, mother was 40, 47, my mother was 47, I was 13. Anyway, Virginia uh, started with a father, right, an autocratic Leslie Stephan, and he was just the sort of Victorian father that could do damage even without the laying on of hands. Uh, just by a look, uh, near the end of her life, Virginia writes that her father was one of those insiders, that is, privileged males. She considered herself an outsider. She says that her father was one of those men turned out by the university machine, the sort whose colorless English prose she says she respects but does not love, does not save her. These thoughts are found in her diary from the years 1936 until her death by suicide in 1941. Her early years were scarcely objective. Apparently, she tried to kill herself for the first time just after her mother's death. She suffered what is believed to be her first psychotic episode at that time. Right. Uh, adolescence, that's when the heavy stuff hits. During her childhood, Virginia was the victim of continued, continuing sexual abuse. In a letter to Ethel Smythe, written in January of 1941, that is, uh, close to the time of her death, she's finally able to write. She says, I still shiver with shame. Shame at the memory of my half-brother standing me on a ledge, aged about six or so, exploring my private parts. Yes, some of us know all about that. I was ten. Anyway, for Virginia, it was her half-brother, George Duckworth. Uh, it was Virginia's mother's son by an earlier marriage who was responsible for this uh, ugly behavior. He would have been in his twenties at the time of his abuse of Virginia. Virginia's nephew... Uh, her biographer, Quentin Bell, he writes that his, his aunt, Virginia, quote, she felt that George had spoiled her life before it had fairly begun. Uh-huh. Quentin Bell is the son of Vanessa Bell. Uh, Virginia's first, yes, Virginia's full sister, Closest to Virginia in sympathy and age, right? Uh-huh. As, yes, naturally shy in sexual matters. That's what the nephew says, that she was naturally shy in sexual matters. Uh, he says she was from this time, that is the time of the abuse, terrified back into a posture of frozen and defensive panic. There you go, uh, six years old. Uh, I do think that adult women have a different axe to grind, uh, especially when they might lose their jobs, but 
it is the children that that leaves me just sick. Uh, now, Quentin Bell, the nephew, he has the limitations of his sex and his era. His interpretation of Virginia's psychosexual life is simplistic. Uh, he quotes letters in his biography and comments, Virginia alludes to her frigidity. I will repeat the word, frigidity. Uh, the letter, yes. Uh, this is a letter written to a woman friend shortly after Virginia's marriage to Leonard Wolfe. She writes, Why do you think people make such a fuss about marriage and copulation? Why do some of our friends change upon losing chastity? Possibly my great age makes it less of a catastrophe, but certainly I find the climax immensely exaggerated. Except for a sustained good humor, uh, Leonard shan't see this due to the fact that every twinge of anger is at once visited upon my husband, I might still be Miss S., that is, Miss Stephens. Interesting, so interesting. She has developed a uh, a sense of humor. Uh, wisecracks, uh-huh. She says she has sustained good humor when dealing with her husband. Yes, she turns her internalized anger on poor Leonard Wolf. Uh, Oh, and her great age that, that she alludes to is 30. Yes, she married at 30. Uh, when I first came across this reference, I filed it next to a letter, the one written by Charlotte Bronte, from which I just read you a passage. Uh, now, Charlotte married in her late 30s, and apparently uh, she had the same sort of, oh, what's all the fuss about reaction to Maternal bliss. Uh. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh. Sad, sad, sad. Lack of fulfillment is frigidity to some of these people. Yes, to these. Uh, to the nephew, right. Uh, Virginia's inability to reach orgasm. Uh, that was called frigidity. Uh, Virginia's sister Vanessa also suffered from the prurient attentions of George Duckworth. But the sister Vanessa went on to a life of sexual fulfillment, that is, of orgasms as well as children, lovers, and so on. Yet Vanessa didn't manage a contented and happy marriage, which by all accounts Leonard and Virginia did sustain, more or less. During the more than a quarter of a century they were together. Uh, obviously, Leonard Wolfe was intelligent and understanding. Uh, Vanessa's husband <laughs> was something else, yes. Cock-a-doodle-dum is what the girls, the two sisters called him. Cock-a-doodle-dum. Anyway, Vanessa writes of the period following Vanessa of Virginia's honeymoon. She writes, they seem very happy, but they were evidently both a little exercised in their minds on the subject of the goat's coldness. Coldness, yes. Uh, I think, says Vanessa, I perhaps annoyed her, but may have consoled him by saying that I thought she never had understood or sympathized with 
sexual passion in men. Apparently, she still gets no pleasure at all from the act, which I think is curious. <laughs> they were very anxious to know when I first had an orgasm. This is Vanessa writing, yes. I couldn't remember, do you? But no doubt I sympathize with such things if I didn't have them from the time I was two. Okay, Vanessa says that male behavior was okay with her from the time she was two. Hers is a much different story. She decided to join them, you know what I mean. Uh, she decided to go along with the way things are. Uh, I find these letters very revealing. It strikes me as one of the more blatant forms of denial. One which I myself chose at one period in my life. It's a choice whereby one joins the oppressor and becomes a partner in the game in this way. The woman is not a victim, but a participant, a comrade in erotic achievement. Unfortunately, this role is not always authentic. Although it gives women the illusion of choice as well as a part to play in men's lives. Vanessa is a fascinating woman. By some standards, her life may have been richer than her sister's. By identifying her own desires with those of the men around her, she was able to bury herself in womanliness, literally. Like her mother Julia and her older half-sister Stella, who died at the age of 28, Vanessa devoted herself to serving a male mystique. Uh, there is ample evidence that she enjoyed it. Lovers and children possessed her. A lot of lovers for Vanessa. <laughs> Virginia was not like that. Vita Sackville West, perhaps the woman closest to Virginia after Vanessa, uh, possibly her lover, uh, she wrote that Virginia, quote, dislikes the possessiveness and love of domination in men. In fact, she dislikes the quality of masculinity. Perhaps the tyranny that Virginia suffered both from the sexual abuse, which continued and continued over a period of many years, and the psychic abuse of men like her father and of Vanessa's husband, Clive Bell, uh, Yes, <laughs> a tormentor sensitized her to a deeper need, the need to keep her soul, her own, yes, a soul of your own, is what was needed in my estimation. And, of course, Virginia loved her husband, Leonard Wolf. She writes that after 25 years, they can't bear to be separate, that it is enormous pleasure to be wanted to be a wife. She writes about how complete their marriage is, how they walk about the square, lovemaking, how they share in the garden work, and about how much it means to show him her work. Yet, during her psychotic episodes, Virginia physically assaulted her husband, Leonard Wolfe, that is. In the beginning... Virginia seems to have had some notion 
that Leonard might awaken her sexually, perhaps uh, because he was a Jew, she thought. Well, she imagined that he was more erotic than the Bloomsbury blokes she hung out with. Uh, blokes like Lytton Stracy. Lytton Stracy was gay, of course. Uh, another long story. Uh, Virginia was once engaged to Lytton Strachey for the better part of a day. Perhaps what Virginia calls Leonard's passionate nature is just English for someone who cares. It does seem that he loved her. In any case, Leonard developed a real capacity to nurture her genius, a willingness to love her as she was. She writes that she loves to be loved. And yet, she has a physical aversion to her husband. Hot bricks, dancing on hot bricks indeed. In 1939, the Wolfs received a visit from Sigmund Freud. Freud gave Virginia a narcissus. When I first read of this incident, I supposed he meant to insult her or chide her. Then I thought about it. Today, most people use the word narcissistic to mean selfish or self-obsessed. But in some mythologies, the god Narcissus also represents the reflective soul. I think of the moment Virginia Woolf describes in the opening section of her essay, A Room of One's Own, in which she is gazing down into the water of a pond, and she's trying to grasp her own thought. She's interrupted by a fussy male, male authority figure who tells her that women aren't allowed on the grass. No, no women on the grass. She must go somewhere else. When I was a college student, uh, luckily for me, in a woman's college, this passage made a deep and lasting impression on me. The right to be alone with my thoughts and not to be interrupted. Not to be interrupted by some officious man is not just a right but a duty. Charlotte Bronte wrote to a woman friend that the kindest thing her husband did was to leave her alone uh, when she was buried in thought. Uh, of course, it's true even today that if Freud or any other man gives a woman a narcissus, he's probably accusing her of being less than outgoing, less than willing to pay attention and give herself to a male at the end of the visit with Freud. Virginia wrote that he struck her as an alert, screwed up, shrunk, very old man. That's a quote. Virginia Woolf writes that Freud was a screwed-up, shrunk, very old man. Uh, he asked her what the English were going to do about Hitler. It's interesting. I was just thinking of another passage here somewhere where Leonard Woolf says that uh, he found Freud to be an incredibly gentle, gentle old man. Hmm, how about that? Anyway, uh, Freud did ask Virginia what the English were going to do about Hitler, and uh, 
What Virginia was going to do was kill herself. She and Leonard had discussed the suicide. Uh, if Hitler invaded England, they thought it might be a good idea. In fact, it seems that her own fear of another mental breakdown, always a recurring nightmare in her life, is what really drove her to her death. She was 58. Uh, and I have to stop with Virginia's death. I think maybe next Tuesday I'll go on with Virginia and talk about what it is that worked for her, how she managed to take all this atrocious behavior <laughs> and turn it into great works. I wish she'd been a critic, not a novelist, but that's just me. Till next week at this same time, this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. For 2018, KPFA has organized some timely events with serious political authors. Beginning in January, in the robust spirit of Black Lives Matter, Kat Brooks gets with BLM founder Patrice Colaris to discuss her book, When They Call You a Terrorist. The 1st of February, Daniel Ellsberg and Larry Bensky will talk about Dan's urgent new work, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Then Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz will present Loaded a disarming history of the Second Amendment, meaning guns. Richard Wolf will then view the ominous wry decline of U.S. capitalism. To greet springtime, Michio Kaku will provide a startling new perspective he calls the future of humanity, terraforming Mars, interstellar travel, immortality, and our destiny beyond Earth. Find out much more about these events on the KPFA.